This is Marketing Smarts, a podcast committed to cutting through all the confusing marketing BS so you can actually understand how to take action and change your business today. Welcome to Marketing Smarts. I am Ann Candido. And I am April Martini. And today we're going to talk about techniques for defining and engaging your target consumer. So we've talked a lot about the need to clearly define your consumer so you can develop a really compelling brand and marketing outreach to engage and win them. But it's also important to continue to revisit your consumer profiles because the environment we live in changes quickly, which impacts your consumers' wants and needs. So when businesses stall, it's generally because they've lost touch with their consumer or failed to recognize a need to broaden their consumer appeal. So today we're going to go in-depth on how you define those consumers as well as strategies for engaging them to keep them coming back to you. Yes, and as we often like to do, we want to make sure for clarity that we're defining things appropriately in a way that people understand. So we are using the word consumer, which implies products and services being sold directly to the general market of people. But we want to just make sure that everyone listening understands it still applies to B2B customers as well. So we're going to use the word consumer for simplicity, and we'll call out nuances based on B2B, but we just wanted that to be abundantly clear before we get started. Absolutely. And before we jump in, we want to introduce our guest for this episode, who is an expert at consumer definition and engagement, Jennifer Canopel, Senior Director, Team Driver and Industry Communications at NASCAR. Hey, Jen, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, Hi there. How are you guys? Um, Yeah, my name is Jennifer, and I uh, am a 15-year sports communications veteran. Um, So I've been at NASCAR for about four years now, and in that role, I essentially lead the strategic communications across all of our teams and drivers um, just to make sure we have, you know, cohesive communication and alignment. Um, you know, before that, I, I worked at a PR agency in New York City for nearly 12 years, um, leading sports, entertainment, lifestyle, marketing events, et cetera. So been in this game for a little bit, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and she's not really explaining the fact that she led some of the best communication events ever because we did we did them together so that's why so me and jenna go way back (laughs) (laughs) all right so let's jump in to the four techniques for defining and engaging your target consumer so the first one describe your consumer in terms of psychographic attributes as well as demographic ones so psychographic ones are beliefs behaviors values opinions attitudes interests and lifestyles Demographic is age, gender, race, household income, and marital status. People have the tendency to really focus on the demographic, but they don't put enough weight into the psychographic. And well, let me tell you why it's important through an example here. So in 2007 in San Francisco, Brian Chechki and Joe Gebbia needed extra cash for rent. So they noticed all the hotel rooms in the city were booked for this industrial design conference that was going on. So they bought a few airbeds and put them on a site and called it Air Bed and Breakfast, and they charged $80 a night. The first three guests were a 30-year-old Indian man, a 35-year-old woman from Boston, and a 45-year-old father from Utah. So even if you just look at that (laughs) from their first three guests, (laughs) there is no demographic continuity within those at all, right? So if they had just set up, hey, we're looking for a certain demographic target, they totally would have missed what became Airbnb's target consumer, which is somebody that's adventurous, experiential, extroverted, open-minded, opportunistic. This became the lifeblood of their company, not 
the fact that they were trying to identify a certain age range or a certain, um, you know, male or female. So it's really, really important to think about what the psychographics are of your consumer in order to make sure that you are not ruling out a certain potential target that could be really great for your business. And I know, Jen, NASCAR is fantastic at this. And I know you guys are going through this kind of this transformation. You always are with regards to how do you build more of this psychographic approach versus just a demographic approach. Can you share some? Yeah, I mean, you kind of hit it and, you know, we've we've kind of had a, a stigma for a, a little bit here that, you know, we only appeal to certain audiences in, in the South. And, you know, that's that's ultimately not not the case. Um, it's a very wide ranging sport that appeals to a lot of different people, um, you know, psychographically and demographically. So we really dive into, um, you know, what are what are. Um, you know, fans' interests. What are they looking at? What are they? What are they doing day to day? Why do they have an interest in the sport? Um, you know, as of you know, last year we've obviously had some very difficult times, but it's it's changed the sport really for 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 good. Um, we've started to really open up the sport to brand new audiences. Um, and we, we've done that, you know, a number of ways. We have a number of new owners that are, that are young and diverse and interesting and fun. Um, you know, one of our owners is Pitbull. I mean, Mr. Worldwide. <laughs> Another one is Michael Jordan. I mean, oh my gosh. It, it, it doesn't get bigger than that. Um, so, you know, bringing that, those fan bases into the sport just through the audiences that those individuals have. Um, is proving to really show more interest in the in the sport. You know, um, I, I, I sort of joke about the Pitbull reference, but Pitbull's whole motto is like, you know, going from from nothing to something. And he has this school called Slam down in Miami, and kids that like, you know, they're they don't have a lot. They're they're not coming from a ton, and you know, typically in a, in a in a normal world, like they may not see or have an interest in a sport like this. And yet, you know, he's, he's opening their eyes and they're coming to these sports and it really is a whole new fan base. Um, so we've been really, really trying to be inclusive. Um, you know, there were a number of events that happened last year and we've made a, a strong plea and a strong um, drive to just have more diversity and inclusion throughout the industry, whether that's, you know, making things, you know, more open for, for children and folks of diverse backgrounds and really learning about them. Our DNI team and our research and insights team has just done so much work in the last year and a half to try to get a better understanding of people in general because it's it's just so wide ranging. And I think, you know, the, the really great thing that we've been able to do is, you know, we don't, I, I wouldn't say we have a target audience. We're really just trying to be inclusive and, and, and include everybody that we possibly can to come to a racetrack and watch on TV and, you know, don driver apparel. <laughs> well, and I think that is so interesting, you know, so Anne's closer to the NASCAR f- folks than me, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but to have people like Pitbull and Michael Jordan on your roster, and I know, obviously, kind of the stigma that used to be about who NASCAR was for, and you don't necessarily want to target specific people, but you have to have some sense, right, of like, how you're deciding who to go after or sure. why is Michael Jordan an investor? Why is Pitbull, you know, can you talk a little bit about those choices? Because I think, I know there's a lot of work, like you said, that's been done behind it and how that all came to be. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there's, there's still, you know, the target to those, 
um, you know, middle-aged, middle-aged men, um, younger kids really trying to get them involved. Those that really watch, watch the sport. Um, the focus is on them. They've, they've probably been involved and been watching the sport, um, you know, from the time they were little, um, you know, I can kind of speak to my family and, you know, my dad would watch, you know, NASCAR races all the time. And he'd make me sit down and watch them and be like, dad, they are driving in circles. What is this? You know? (laughs) (laughs) And then he takes me to a race and I'm like, Oh, wow. Like, you know, it's, it's, there's ways to engage and do things. And I can talk about that too in a little bit, but it's, it's really, you know, honing on, on, you know, the folks that are my dad's age and bringing in a new audience that's a little bit younger. And it's, it's really a matter of targeting all of them in different ways. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Michael Jordan, I can talk a little bit about that. He came into the sport. Um, he announced last year at the end of 2020, that, um, he was going to co-own a team with another one of our drivers, Denny Hamlin. So Denny Hamlin drives for Joe Gibbs racing and he mm. has been sponsored by, um, FedEx for the majority of his career. Um, and Denny and Michael are good friends. They're golfing buddies. They, they play golf all the time. And during that time, um, and this is a story that Denny will tell that, um, during COVID Denny played golf a lot and he's like, Oh man, like, uh, is this what retirement is? Because I need something to do. <laughs> he called Michael and like kind of sort of joking was like, Hey man, we need to start a team. And Michael's like, yeah, get on it. Uh, <laughs> That's really cool. So they started this team and, um, they selected Bubba Wallace as their driver. Um, who was the only African-American driver that we have in the sport. Um, and they started a team called 2311, um, which is Jordan's number mm-hmm. and Dan's number mm-hmm. together. Um, and you know, they're, they're doing okay. There's a lot of, there's a lot of bumps in the road, but with that, you know, comes Michael Jordan's brand, you know, the folks that follow Michael. So all of those basketball fans are questioning, Hey, what's he doing? What is that? Maybe I'm interested. Maybe I'm not. Um, you know, then come some of the, the apparel choices, you know, he's, he's, they're now investing in, you know, kind of the Jordan brand and what some of those things look like and how does that appeal to those who are into, you know, air Jordans and all that kind of stuff. So, kind of targeting some of those fan bases as well and, and making sure they understand about the team and that they, um, you know, have an opportunity to see what Michael and Denny and, and Bubba are doing. And it's, it is a different audience to be frank. Like it really, it really is. And it's, it's a lot of stuff that maybe we haven't done um, as quickly and as often as we should have, but, you know, I think we're getting on the right track and we're, we're doing a lot of learning um, lots of research and how to, in how to target diverse audiences. And it's been a, a total learning process. And there's a lot of things that we've, we've, you know, kind of tried to implement here and we're working on a lot in the coming, you know, coming months and coming years. So looking forward to it. Yeah. That's, I, I, I had a similar story about NASCAR and, you know, my belief on what the demographic was until we brought the tide ride back and I got to go to my first race and I was just like, Whoa. I mean, the energy that comes from the speed at which these guys are racing at is like mm. nothing. You can't, you can't compare it to anything. And you can't go there and not just be like totally like this is an experience. Like just from the speed to the the, the action of the, the pit crews. I mean, it's just like 
phenomenal. And the closeness you get too, and especially the proximity yeah. to the drivers and the way mm-hmm. that the drivers engage. I mean, that the psychographics there, like the energy. I mean, if you if you crave energy, if you crave like that one-on-one like fan experience with drivers. So the psychographic around that, like familiarity and that and that like the humanity, because all of them are really like developed as far as like not only talent as drivers, but also with regards to how that they engage um, with their communities and and everything that they're passionate about. So there's definitely a psychographic behavior that I think NASCAR is really tapping into now that makes people like Jordan like and, and Pitbull like a wow, but like, oh, interesting. Yeah. Not like, mm-hmm. where did that come from? Yep. I mean, it's, it's like, oh, well, these are sports lovers. These are people who enjoy speed. And like Pitbull has like, they're and they like top performance kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. so you're starting to kind of pull on those like psychographic that I think is going to really pull in a, a very comprehensive fan base you may not have tapped into before. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it, we're going to see how it all pans out, obviously. But, um, you know, just talking about some of these fans, they're just, they're so loyal. Like, you know, people love Michael Jordan and they're attached to him. You know, same thing with NASCAR as a whole. Like, they tie themselves to a driver, tie themselves to the sport, and, and, and they're usually set for life. So it's, it's really a, a, a matter of getting them involved, engaged. And usually that means getting them to the racetrack, which is absolutely. Do. Yeah. The next technique for defining and engaging your target consumer is to determine what your business needs to grow. So either more of the same or a new type of consumer. So let's first talk more of the same. So if you're doing well amongst a certain target already, your opportunity may be in reaching more of them by proliferating your marketing efforts. And I know, Jen, you have done this a lot, especially over the last couple of years, to draw in more of the same. And it probably is a little bit new, but a new type of consumer too. Can you speak more to what you guys have been doing? Yeah, we've been, we've been doing a lot actually. Um, you know, we, like I said earlier, we're, we're trying to reach just wide ranging audiences. So, um, you know, even, even trying to reach kids, um, just the whole car, the cars franchise, Disney's cars. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been working really hard with, with those folks. And, um, you know, a lot of our drivers have voices in, in some of those, um, in some of those movies and there are, you know, collectible cars and, you know, just toys and things along those lines, um, for kids. So, you know, that's one example, um, you know, trying to reach, um, you know, men, the, the Netflix generation, that's like probably 18 to, I would say 36. We've worked with Netflix and we had a a show called the crew, um, Mm -hmm. with James. So we had a, a number of drivers on that show. Um, so really trying to insert drivers in places where, you know, we want to make sure that we're, we're reaching audiences that we want to be engaged in the sport. Um, so those are, those are two kind of examples. Um, another is, you know, as of late, we've really been working with music artists, um, to kind of help us with some, you know, pump up videos that, that can be customized, um, to, to some of the drivers. So like over this, this last few weeks, we've had our all-star race and we worked with, um, I think her name is Sweetie. Um, yep. Sweetie. Yep. Sweetie. <laughs> Am I getting it right? Got yep. it right. Yep, you did. She, uh, she kind of re- re- rewrote the words a little bit to her song um, and had that go out uh, via a few of our drivers leading into the All-Star Race. So Austin Dillon posted something, Ryan Blaney. Um, and it was really just to get some engaging content and to reach fan bases that maybe we didn't before via 
our driver's channel. So um, those are a few ways we've kind of done a few different things to try to reach um, different types of consumers that we're interested in, in, in bringing into the sport. Yeah, that's interesting because that's, yeah, definitely um, falls into the, the new type of consumer too. So you're, even if you feel like there's still an opportunity to reach more of the same, it, it still might be time to consider a new target, which I think you guys have done very well, especially if trying to get a little bit more to the fringe, like you would definitely have to rewrite Sweetie's words if you wanted uh, to yeah. work <laughs> in a family-friendly sports environment, but it's still like a different kind of person. It kind of makes you go, ah, interesting, what's yeah. going on here? But you're doing it in a way that you're not alienating your primary consumer still. It still might be things that they may or may not be engaged in, but still at the core, NASCAR is NASCAR. But you have yeah. done some also some really fun things. I remember like um, a couple of years ago, you changed up some of the courses, right? Like, so then you're yeah. starting to do some in, like um, some grass like driving and, 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 and all those sorts of things and kind of changing the shapes and stuff like that, which was a great way of just getting more of like the same kind of like NASCAR enthusiast um, consumer to really engage maybe in more races um, or to come to more races. Is that right? Am I recalling that right? Yeah. Yeah. No, you've got it. I think, you know, there's been a fan base that's been, you know, following the sport and attending races and watching um, for years and years and years. And, um, you know, some of the mentalities there were, okay, this is getting stale. Okay. Mm -hmm. Where personalities. Okay. You know, this is, getting boring. And again, not across the board, but that was just some mentality that we were kind of hearing. So yeah, we changed up our schedule a little bit. Um, you know, our, our schedule in general is, is different than every other sport. Our, I'm using air quotes too. Our Super Bowl is our first race of the year. Yep. Mm. <laughs> it's not the last. So the Daytona 500 is the first race and we kick off with that. And our championship ends in ends in November. So that was something we wanted to keep intact, but we really wanted to change up, um, you know, what the season looked like as a whole. So we've added a ton more, a ton more road courses. Um, whereas kind of in the past, we'd only go to, um, two, two road courses. We'd go to Watkins Glen up in New York and Sonoma out in California. Now we've had, you know, more road, road courses already this season than we've had, you know, in years combined. So we went to Daytona and ran a road course. We ran to Circuit of the Americas in Austin and Red Road Course. We've been to Sonoma. Um, we're adding Road America. Um, we had recently added one in Charlotte. We'll go to Watkins Glen. Um, so it's a format that um, I think has re-engaged a lot of fans that we've had that may have lapsed. Um, you know, they're, they're seeing a different format. They're seeing, you know, some of their favorite drivers you know, do something different that they haven't done before too. So um, I think that's been a, a huge change and, um, you know, all signs thus far are, are pointing toward that. So that, yes. And then also I think something you guys did phenomenally well, um, especially during the COVID time was um, the introduction of esports. And I thought that was just a phenomenal way to get, like continue to keep fans engaged, but also get a new fan. And I, um, her, you know, some of the stories um, from is it, uh, some of the, the drivers that are traditionally really good on real courses <laughs> weren't as good in the esports, <laughs> and so and yeah. so they were like they were they were struggling to compete. And um, now some of the younger guys who were like you know more attuned to the esports, and some of the younger drivers were were beating the the you know the traditionally good drivers that were um, out on the on on the track. And so it started getting kind of their names out there, and then they were able to compete with um, fans and all, you know create kind of this more interactive environment. Can you speak more to that? Because I think that was just totally brilliant. 
Yeah, I can. So when, when COVID hit, um, you know, we obviously had to stop racing just like the rest of the world. Um, while we were stopped racing, we, we were thinking of two things. Okay. Number one, we're a sport that can come back in a pandemic because theoretically the drivers aren't touching anyone, right? Like mm-hmm. things should be okay. And the other was how do we keep something on TV <laughs> so that people are interested? And we've always had an, a relationship with iRacing. So in working with, at, at the time it was, it was with Fox. Um, so Fox and FS1, we're like, all right, let's create, you know, the eNASCAR iRacing Pro Invitational Series. And that would air on Fox and, and FS1. So ultimately we ended up doing six of those races and it, it, it ranked um, the highest rated esports TV program of all time. Um, wow. With that, it also brought in 2 million unique viewers. These are people who never watched NASCAR before, like never, ever, ever. So you're bringing in a crowd that's number one, much younger. Um, you know, they're probably in, interested in gaming and technology and those kinds of things um, with hopes that maybe that translates to some of them coming to, you know, some races down the line. Um, and, you know, you kind of mentioned some of the older guys having trouble with it and some of those more savvy, savvy drivers. Yeah. Some of them really just didn't like it. And some of the younger guys just loved it and, 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 and crushed it. Um, you know, there's, there's one driver, um, his name's William Byron and that's how he got started in NASCAR. He was an iRacer. He <laughs> succeeded. Oh my gosh. He succeeded at iRacing. He was so good at iRacing. He eventually got a ride in our truck series, uh, moved up from the truck series to the Xfinity. And now, um, he drives, um, he drives for Hendrick Motorsports. He drives the, the 24 car. He drives Jeff Gordon's old car in. Oh my, <laughs> oh gosh. my gosh. How fun is that? <laughs> so like he literally, it's, it's, it's a technique that, you know, people, people love. I honestly, transparently had no clue how big iRacing was until we started doing this. And it's just, it's mind blowing how much practice goes in, um, you know, how many consumers actually participate, um, how many brands get involved in it, um, just for the exposure alone. So, um, you know, it it was something we had not planned on doing um, and we had to do something that was the solution. And it's kind of carried over this year, the beginning of this year, we also um, did a number of iRaces, on Fox, um, our, our season got, got back to okay, but we still don't have practice in qualifying. So some of this iRacing takes the place of that. And we'll probably do a little bit of it here in the fall too. So it's something that's kind of carried over from COVID as well. So do you see fan segments breaking out by the different drivers? Like, so for example, if someone's really good at iRacing and they're younger, right, does that draw then in a younger population plus people that are more into this eye racing. Like, are you able to see any learnings from that? Because I think it's really interesting that it's broadening its appeal with different applications that I think naturally people wouldn't think, oh, that's related to NASCAR. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we've started to see a little bit of that. Um, I think as, as we get back to like normal and, and fans back and, and seeing some of these 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 fans and groups of people, I think we'll probably see more of that through research too. Yeah. Um, yep. it, it seems to make sense to me, and it, it just the way it's gravitating. I, I think that's probably the way that it would go. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I think it's going to totally change the fan experience too at the races, right? Because NASCAR is just known for having what some of the most tremendous fan experiences is what some people do because they'll stay there all weekend and see oh, yeah. all the the whole racing series because it's not everybody just thinks it's the one race, but it's actually multiple races um, multiple times. And so um, there's these like tremendous fan experiences. And now that you're kind of bringing in some of these this younger crowd I'm, I'm excited to see how these fans experiences transform too to accommodate these these younger kids or a different demo, um, so, so, uh, psychographics being the same but different demographics just to kind of continue to um, really prime them and, and, and juice this um, ability to uh, extend into this new consumer base yeah for sure um esports and sports betting sports betting is another big thing that's kind of happened over the last bit of time mm-hmm. it's redefining um you know how the whole fan engagement works um specifically with those new audiences and then you know the the second part of that really is and you kind of hit on it um you know it's not like a one-day thing you don't just come to the game and, and and hang out and that's it you know people go and they spend you know three days there in their camper or you know however they want to do it um, and I, I always tell people, you know, they, they joke, they're like, oh, you're just going around in circles. I'm like, yeah, it's different on TV than it is when you go to the track. I was like, come with me to the racetrack and I promise you will have a fun time. Once they get to the racetrack, they're like, oh my God, best thing ever <laughs> um, and want to keep going. And it's not just because, you know, it's cars driving fast, high, intense, but there's, there's just a lot of experiences when you get to that racetrack, you know, there's. There's things for people of all ages, all demographics, all different things to do. Um, and a lot of those things are, you know, run by sponsors. Um, and it's, it's things that people are interested in, things that people are, are loyal to, loyal about, um, and, and just provides a lot of, you know, entertainment and excitement for people once they, with, once they ultimately get back to the track. Yeah, it is. It's, it's phenomenal. All right, our third technique for defining and engaging your target consumer is to define the tension or opportunity that you can uniquely solve for and that delivers an emotional impact in your consumer's life. And we talked about this a lot, which is the need to go beyond what you do or your performance benefit so that you can connect with people and you connect with people by figuring out how you're going to impact their life. And that's first defined by a tension or some sort of angst that your consumer is going through within your industry. It also could be an opportunity, which is defined by like, it would be really cool if this were like available. Usually it's still kind of like rooted in, a, in an angst, but it sometimes it's easier to think about it from the other way. So what we thought would be good here is if we provided some of these examples of how attention or angst has now resulted in a brand love for a brand that we um, are engaged with. So I'm going to let um, April start with what brand that she loves and what that angst was that now caused that love. And then I'll let Jen, you'll you jump in and then I'll, I'll finish this off on this one. But yeah, so mine's going to have absolutely nothing to do with oh, NASCAR. That's, that's so. a shocker, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> Sorry. But um, <laughs> so the one that I thought about really solving for this tension is Sephora, which as a brand, it really shook up the category and the experience for consumers because before Sephora existed, it was either really 
drugstore or you go to the makeup counter at department stores and purchase your makeup that way. And so I think on one hand, if you go to the drugstore, right, you're not really buying high-end stuff and it may or may not work and it's just very transactional versus on the other side, it's more expensive. It was traditionally an experience for people. You could have them try on your makeup for you, et cetera, et cetera, but it just was very, very stale and dated. And so solving for that point, right, where you had people that wanted more of an experience, were willing to pay the higher ticket, but really had nowhere to go if they didn't like that department store experience. And so Sephora solved for a lot of things, really. They, they like I said, shook up the category, everything from solving the the gap, I guess, that existed for those different audiences, bringing to life and bringing forward a brand of their own while also mm-hmm. serving all of these different brands, which are very strong, especially when you think about the crowd that exists in the beauty category, the sheer number of products, the different personalities that sell makeup and build their brands really through that. And then also the experiential nature of being able to try the products. Now, we can't do that right now with COVID still, but traditionally you could go in and by brand, you could experiment or you could ask for assistance in navigating the store and someone would walk you through and show you the different experiences that exist. And the Sephora brand was able to live above and encompass all of these other really strong brands. And so I've learned to love the shopping experience in that store. Um, Even now that I can't try stuff out, it feels very natural for me to go in and navigate. And it's an experience. I look forward to going into Sephora. On the other side, you have Ulta, which is a brand that popped up after Sephora. And the whole idea of that brand is it bridges the gap really between Sephora and then the convenience store because it's a bit more transactional in nature. And sometimes they're selling stuff more cheaply, sometimes not, quite frankly. You mm-hmm. think they are, but they're not. Mm-hmm. Um and they're able to sell, you know, discounts of some of those expensive brands. But when I go in there, it's a very different thing. It's like it's next to the grocery store. I'm out of one product. I'm running in to just grab the one thing I need the refill of. And I'm not really thinking about the Ulta brand at all in terms of that, other than they sometimes send me coupons for additional amounts off of whatever I'm buying. Which you can like actually use on like five things. Yeah, which you actually store. can't use on any of the name brands in the store, but it's a little (laughs) bit of a digression. But I think that Sephora has been able to maintain and continue to build and also offer a new experience. So for example, now online, and I saw a lot of this pop up with COVID, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. is bringing their personality into the online experience and also customizing for me. So one of the things that I love, the feature I love is that I can go in and reorder based on previous orders, just click a button and add it to my cart versus trying to go and find the 15 things that I need to refill that may or may not be the same brand and I don't know the shade and all of that kind of stuff. And so they're smart because they get me to buy more and I'm like, I may as well throw that in there too while I'm here. But they make that experience really transcend not just having to go into the store, which now more than ever is truly important. That's a really good example. Jen, what's your example? Yeah, I think mine, I kind of went away from the NASCAR stuff too. Um, I think mine was um, 
Asics running shoes. Oh, I mm. use those too. Kindred <laughs> spirit over here. <laughs> Which may sound weird, but like, you know, when I, I first, I started running a, a long time ago and I, I wasn't a runner by any means. And I just kind of didn't know what to, what to, what to run in. So I went with, you know, your basic Nikes, right? And I was like, well, these don't feel right. And nope. then um, kind of switched over and, and, and did New Balance and then right and then I you know got my feet kind of checked out and they're like well keep up the new balances and we'll, we'll kind of see what happens um ultimately I I went to um a marathon um uh a marathon expo and it was before a race that I was running and for some weird reason the only setup um that was there from a sneaker company was ASICs and, um, for me, they were so, they were so welcoming and like, come try our shoes, come try our brands. We're like, what are your running goals? And like very open and, you know, fun and talkative. And I kind of tried those shoes and I was like, oh, all right, these are comfortable and, um, I can try these and kind of started running in those. And I guess in my head, I was like, all right, are these really comfortable? Or was it the experience that I had with the people at the ASICS pop-up store that kind of led me to, um, you know, continue to use those shoes. And to this day, like I run in those shoes. I love those shoes. Um, I always recommend them to friends and I don't know, again, it's, it's one of those emotional connection kind of things that I was like, all right, well, these feel good. I like these people. I'll continue to buy their product. I feel you sister. Asics, I am Asics exclusive, and I actually will buy like the same exact pair. Yes, over I and over just again. Did that? I yep. just bought two pairs of <laughs> yeah. the same ones because sometimes you just can't find them again. Uh huh. Like, away in like you know a year. Or so. Yep, I'm it's with so you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's another really great example, and I think what you guys both hit on so brilliantly was the fact that these are commoditized products, running shoes makeup. They're like commoditized products, but it's the intentionality of developing the brand with that emotional connection in mind that deals with an angst or an opportunity that really has made those brands rise above mm -hmm. and create a relationship with you that you keep on going back. And so I think that's just fundamentally what this is all about with regards to creating that consumer connection or that brand love connection that's so important. And then I'll round out and say, you know, my example is DoorDash. And I think I've talked about DoorDash you before. You love DoorDash I love so DoorDash, <laughs> but I will tell you, they are trying my patience. Although they ah. did solve for an issue. I won't go into my big, like, sort of, like, Indian story <laughs> from what happened with my Indian order. But, um, I mean, DoorDash is not just, like, food delivery. I mean, because you have Uber Eats and, and, and that sort of thing, too. It's like, it's a food concierge service. I mean, that's kind of how I see it. It's and, and the the thing that makes it such a huge relief for me is like we had four, well, we still do kind of have four kids at home, right? <laughs> um, me and Tony, my husband, we work full time. I mean, we have a bunch of stuff going on. The last thing you want to do is kind of sometimes have to figure out like, gosh, what are we going to eat? And you don't want to go through drive throughs and you don't want to like, you know, bake something. And especially when it's late at, late at night and stuff, you just want to kind of go home and kind of chill. And so the opportunity for somebody to actually bring you food that you order <laughs> from like a restaurant like that is right around you. I mean, I couldn't think of anything that could save my life more and, <laughs> and, and just provide a little bit of flexibility. And on top of that, it's not really that much more expensive, if at all, because I've dash pass, of course, than to go into the restaurant <laughs> and actually eat there. Now, I guess if we're going to order drinks, then that would be more expensive to eat at the restaurant. It's probably cheaper to do to our Justin Jink at home. So there's my justification in that. 
Um, so, um, I, and I think the other thing that goes above and beyond there is the customer service. They do do an excellent job of customer service where I have not seen the same kind of behavior as some of these other services, um, food services, that is, that uh, really like, you know, if you have a problem, like they take full responsibility for it and they even respond to it in a way it's like, oh, that totally sucks when you didn't get your food order, the right food order, because my actually my dasher did drop off the wrong food. Um, and she says, that just totally sucks. Um, yeah, I, I, I would be totally mad if that happened to me. And this is the customer service one a person at DoorDash. Um, and so what she did, she and this is the second time this has happened. So it doesn't happen very often because we probably DoorDash like once or twice a month, probably three or four times a month, okay, if I was totally honest, is um, they refunded the whole amount. Um, and they just put it in, I mean, I could have gotten it back on my credit card, but they did it in credits. And without, not a lot of questions asked. They're just like, oh, you had a really poor experience. Let me put a smile on your face. How would refunding your your money sound to you? And I was like, okay, so that <laughs> works, you know? And that was just yeah. a very simple um, engagement mechanism. Again, mm-hmm. that's why it feels like a food concierge. It's not like just a food delivery service. It's like, no, we want you to have the right experience, not just like the transactional um, exchange of you ordered food, here's your food. So I thought that that was, that was a really good showcase of something that's bigger than just a, 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 the transactional service of delivering food. It's a good one. Yep. Oh, I like it. And I think that's like leads to like a really good like summary point here is and you hear us say this a lot, but it's even though you're putting a price tag on a thing or a service, the true value is in selling the emotional connection. That's where you're able to grow your your customer or your consumer relationships. Um, you get to scale more quickly, you get to frankly, you get to charge more because you're creating more value because you're doing something in consumers' lives, not just having a transactional experience that is really commoditized and, and price-led. So so good examples from all of us, I think, on um, <laughs> how that how that comes to life in our, in our world. And then the fourth technique for defining and engaging your target consumer is by considering cultural and community opportunities for connection. Now, if you've been diligent in defining psychographics, culture and community opportunities kind of come up naturally. You, you kind of figure out where you want to be because that's where your consumer is. So for example, um, if you're a local business, you'll want to understand the community in which you operate so you can better appeal to the consumer who lives there. Um, so we've talked a lot about Cora, which is a new local restaurant here in Cincinnati. And we've talked about the fact that they take Cincinnati favorites like Cincinnati-style chili and kind of make them their own. So they're really tapping into that cultural nature of what makes Cincinnati special and finding an authentic and unique way to be able to tap into that to draw people in and give them a reason to to try. Another example um, is that Cincinnati right now is a really hot real estate market. I know that sounds surprising to a lot of people, but it really is. <laughs> if you listen to the podcast, <laughs> they mark Cincinnati all the time. So many of the, your your service-oriented folks, like your um, financial folks, your legal folks, your accounting folks, your uh, realtors, they all are now starting to develop more commercial arms so that they can cater to the Cincinnati real estate market. Again, they're trying to tap into a cultural phenomenon that is going on right now or a community phenomenon that's going on right now in order to be able to build their clients and be able to then have multiple revenue streams that are coming in, frankly. So as we've all learned, especially during COVID time, um, that having multiple revenue streams can really save you. So, Jen, how is um, NASCAR partnered with companies, agencies, and, and movements to, to create those cultural bonds? 
Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of things that have kind of happened here in 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 recent in recent months. Um, we've announced a, a pretty big partnership with the Boys and Girls Club. Um, so we are, you know, where maybe in the past we'd go into different you know race markets and and do some really great things with you know local communities, etc. Um, we've taken a, a a larger approach to work with boys and girls clubs and do a lot of things in market specifically with them. Um, really engages children. Um, it en- engages you know diverse communities. It engages communities of need, and we work hand in hand to develop programs that that really work for them. Um, I think we have we have our own foundation, the NASCAR Foundation, where we we try to just roll things out as as frequently as we can and trying to help in in some of the communities where NASCAR is specifically based. Um, but they also have a good presence at at racetracks. Um, I think we see a lot of movement um, type things and um, charity elements with a lot of our drivers. Um, I, I think a lot of folks just think that they're just these guys who get in cars and drive, but a good majority of them, you know, have passion points and, and they're very, very, very strong with, you know, their beliefs and places that they help and communities that they help. And I spend a lot of time, you know, trying to help them promote those, um, whether that be events or just trying to get, you know, media coverage. Um, so really working with, with them and trying to develop what those, um, what those, you know, passion points and, and elements are and, and can be, and can be activated against, you know, there's, there's so many of them, um, Kyle Bush and his wife, they, they have a foundation called the bundle of joy fund, and it really deals with people going through IVF and fertility issues. Um, Martin Truex Jr. and his girlfriend, um, Sherry Pollux, they have a foundation that, assists with children's cancers and um, uh, ovarian cancer in women. Um, so there's a lot of things and a lot of places where, um, you know, we really dive in to help, you know, those that are in either in need or communities where we feel um, we might be able to kind of leave something behind and help others. So there's tons and tons of foundations out there and you just mentioned how fragmented, right, that it can kind of yeah. get. Mm-hmm. How do you pull together your point of view and then weave that, weave the NASCAR brand into the story of how you participate or how the writers choose to participate or, you know, which one's the main one you sponsor versus some of the smaller ones? I mean, how does that work? Because something like Boys and Girls Club, right, they have a very strong brand right. too. So you want to make sure that they're working together, all of that stuff. So talk a little bit about how that works. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really just a, it's a lot of communication, um, really working with, um, you know, when we make it less fragments and it's usually working with, with something with the boys and girls club and the NASCAR foundation where it gets more fragmented is probably with the driver's charities because their interests might be a little different and and points might be somewhat different, but in terms of, you know, let's just say, for example, working with the boys and girls club and all these different markets, um, you know, it's, it's really working with them in, in that, um, specific market and figuring out where the need is. So an example that we just did was we had an event with the boys and girls club and Bubba Wallace's team. So with, with, you know, Michael Jordan, Denny, again, back to those guys <laughs> um, and McDonald's, um, which is headquartered in Chicago. And we just had an iRacing event that was utilizing a Chicago street course. So, um, Bubba went to, to the McDonald's headquarters. Um, we set up a whole activation there where he could do the race from McDonald's headquarters. And we brought in all of, um, 
we brought in a bunch of kids from the boys oh, and girls. So awesome. It, it was in conjunction with, it's a lot of people and it's a lot of organizations. So, right. You've got McDonald's, you've got the boys and girls clubs, you've got Bubba Wallace, you've got the team. Um, it's, it's all those parties and it's, it's trying to make that come to life. So we'll do those kinds of things in each and every market and, and ensure that, you know, it all makes sense. So we might take something sort of like that and go to Atlanta and do something with, um, let's just say Chase Elliott with one of his sponsors, let's say Napa and, and do a boys and girls club event there. Got so you, all these things kind of tied in from the driver team sponsor. And then again, boys and girls club perspective. So it's all working for everybody. And it's, it, it's, it's kind of mutually beneficial if that makes sense. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah, and I think that's the, the the key like point is that it is mutually beneficial. And I was going to point that out is that it, it, of course it makes sense for NASCAR and Boys and Girls Club to partner up because of the way that the the brand um, they they can merge in a very authentic way and being able to bring the kids to those experiences and also hopefully maybe get some new fans younger. I mean, obviously there's that motivation to bring in and, and broaden that 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 fan base, especially amongst kids and especially about maybe kids that may not have been exposed to the sport before is a really cool aspect of helping to build a NASCAR brand. But then the NASCAR brand has a ton of weight that helps build the credibility reputation of boys and girls club and helps maybe to funnel some money, you know, to you know, their way in order to help build their programming and their experiences and really fulfill the lives of these kids um, who may not have gotten to have those experiences otherwise. So it's a really beautifully knitted, mutually beneficial partnership that has been intentionally thought through in the way that it comes to life because a lot of people would say oh it's just you know you know, for the media right Jen mm-hmm. I mean we heard that time right. all the time it's just like a media publicity <laughs> right. stunt but it's like all you have to do is see the look on those kids faces and know that you've changed their lives in, in that right. moment as well as the driver's faces to know that hey I'm changing these kids lives you know so it it does bring to life something that's really truly meaningful so I thought that's a great example well and I think yeah. a lot of times too there's an over oversimplification in people's minds of what it actually takes, right? So, like Jen, you just said, like you know, it's a it's a lot of orchestration, it is a right? Lot of work. right? And yeah. <laughs> and so I think just pointing that out and thinking through these major companies coming together, and then and to your point, with such intentionality, yeah, and brands that maybe you wouldn't throw in the ring together naturally, but that was the perfect reason to bring everybody together. And then Jen, I think also duplicating those efforts as it makes sense with other parties. So you always have Boys and Girls Club, but it might be location-based and then the drivers based on the reason to be in that city or with the, you know the, whatever the partner is you choose for that city and making that all work together so it feels very community-based, mm-hmm. even though it might be replicated across different areas. That's just smart right. scale. Yeah, smart scale. Exactly. We're hoping, we're hoping it pans out, you know, long-term. It's a really exciting, um, you know, streamlined process, I think, with with the with the Boys and Girls Club. And hopefully, you know, there's a lot of people we can help in the long run. I think that's fantastic. All right. So just to summarize the four techniques for defining and engaging your target consumer. Describe your consumer in terms of psychographic attributes as well as demographic ones. Determine what your business needs to grow, more of the same or a new type of consumer. To find the tension or opportunity that you can uniquely solve for and that delivers an emotional impact in your consumers' lives. And consider cultural and community opportunities for connection. Are you craving a deeper dive immersion into the topics on our podcast? Then you will appreciate our virtual consultancy. 
Located on the shop page of our website, forthright-people.com, you can now download our digital coaching modules on vigilant leadership, culture building, and social strategy. For the cost of a book, you will get diagnostic tools and exercises to assess your current state and development tools to quickly and intentionally improve your proficiency. These are quick yet effective ways to improve your marketing savvy today. Check it out and let us know other topics you would like us to go deep on. And with that, we're going to move into our next segment, which is Into Trenches. And this is where we give the real-world examples, but we're going to talk about it through the probably the lens of NASCAR. But you should be able to take these nuggets and be able to apply them to your businesses so you can take action on them now. And we'll help you make those connections as well. All right. The first question, what exactly is consumer research and what is the benefit? All right, so we get this question a ton. All um, the time. Yeah, because, and I'm sure, Jen, you get to experience it, and I'm going to ask you to jump in and give us some examples yeah. here once I kind of set up this context. Um, because, um, you know, it, it's definitely what I would consider a little bit of a buzzword, but in general terms, it's how you spend time or when you spend time with your consumer to understand their behavior at a deeper level. And it's all with the purpose and uh, to better cater to them in order to, attract them and, and create more loyalty in those connections. Because we remember, we say those relationships are extremely important. So you need to keep in touch and you need to continually adjust um, into changes to your consumers' wants and needs in order to maintain relevancy, especially when the environment changes, which we saw very evidently in the last year. And really, the real reason why you want to do this is because it's much easier to keep a consumer than to get a new one. Although generally you're trying to do both, both but you don't yeah. want the, the the leaky bucket such that you're like having to get new consumers faster than you are actually, or you're losing consumers faster than you are getting them. So I guess that's the right analogy for the leaky bucket, Anne. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and there's really about a million ways that you can go about getting this uh, this intel from your consumers. Um, everything from like just general observation to actually hiring a research firm. And the sophistication of and the level of research you want to do really depends on the need for certainty. So I'll give you an example. So if you're investing a lot of money into a national expansion or a marketing campaign, you're probably going to want a high level of certainty. So at P&G, we would invest a lot of money in doing quantitative testing to choose like a formulation or to select pricing or these things that are going to have a dramatic impact once they go out into the market. But initially, when we were in the early stages of exploration, we did actually very small-scale concept testing just to see if the idea even had merit. So we weren't doing large testing at that time. We were just selecting a few consumers just to kind of understand, hey, do we even have something here? And some people then will ask, okay, when, when do I do quantitative and when do I do qualitative? So you use quantitative when numbers matter, okay, just based on the example I used before. But quantitative testing can be everything from like a survey monkey to voting. Um, a lot of people use a voting um, mechanism or app to as complicated, as complex as clinical studies or even like we just participate in a census not too long ago. But the whole objective here is that they are actually more objective, but you have less uh, exposure to your respondents. So you don't get as much of the like general information around the actual response. It's a very kind of clear response. and But you're going to need a really clear definition of your consumer for recruitment. So this is like when you're having like those big quantitative number decisions that you need to make is when you use quant studies, okay? Now, when you use qual studies, 
when words matter. So these are like one-on-one or group interviews, in-homes, shop-alongs, experiences, um, anything that's going to allow you to interact more intimately with your consumer so that you can help to define and refine the offering or even define and refine who your consumer target actually is. Here, you're looking for more verbal feedback in their own words. So that's why you know a lot of people say, well, I did a qual study. I had some open-ended questions on my quant test. It's like, no, <laughs> that's not actually going to give you the, t- the true intimate kind of conversational um, words that they're going to use in these contexts that are going to help you really gain those insights. And that's why these are like definitely smaller base sizes because you don't want it to be too unwieldy. And you want it to be in context of hopefully where um, the conversation would naturally happen. So if you're talking about laundry detergent, for example, a lot of times we would do that in the laundry room. If we're doing shop-alongs um, and we wanted to understand like what they, how they purchased it, we'd actually go to the store, right? So a lot of people get very comfortable with focus groups behind two-way mirrors because it's really fun to sit in the back room and eat M&Ms and just <laughs> kind of listen. Um, but that doesn't really give you the insight you need. I don't think that's very fun. I lose oh, it you just quickly. <laughs> that's, where, that's where everybody used to like do yeah. their email, you know, yeah. but anyway. Um, so Jen, how does NASCAR approach consumer research? Yeah. So it's, it's funny you say that because it made me start thinking back like during agency life, I felt we did, we felt like we did a lot of like focus groups and that Same. always seemed to be like the, just the, the, the way we did things was let's do a focus group. Let's do a focus group. And then when I got to NASCAR, um, you know, I started learning more about our entire research and insights department. And we have a whole department that basically just, just gathers insights from fans um, all day long. Um, so we have what's called the NASCAR fan council. And it's a group, it's a large group of people that we are able to tap into. Um, and, and they opt into this. Um, we reach out to, for lots of different things. Um, so it could be big moments in time to gauge, you know, thoughts and opinions on a, on a race or thoughts and opinions on, you know, maybe something we're trying to implement in, in a competition realm. Um, so really trying to get information from these people to, you know, ultimately put something into implementation. And I hadn't seen that before. Um, it, it, it's more of a, you know, it's, it's not just using these focus groups and watching them and doing stuff. It's really, really getting their thoughts and their feedback, um, you know, wide group of people. I mean, we could go from, you know, 50 people to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people if we needed and wanted to. Um, and they have kind of brought some change to some of the things that we, we do. Um, you know, we don't use a lot of those tools anymore that we may have, um, you know, when I was at the agency world, they've kind of just kind of not been something that we've, we've done here, but, um, week to week also after every single race, our DNA, our, uh, insights, research and insights team, they dive into that group to get their thoughts on the weekend's race. Um, so they'll ask them questions like, was the race entertaining? Was it exciting? Did you think it was boring? And they'll rank, they'll rank the races throughout the season. So, you know, maybe, you know, the all-star race was an eight and, you know, one of the road courses was a four and it kind of helps us see where the fan base as a whole has an interest in a certain element of the sport, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, I would anticipate that you see segments show up within that, right? So yeah. if you're mm-hmm. tapping into the loyal fan, I might suspect that a normal race might be more enticing to them versus someone new to the sport. Maybe the road right. races are better or all of that kind of stuff um, where you can see how well you're doing with different audiences. 
Exactly. Yeah, we can we can pinpoint all of that through the ways that we're we're collecting the data and information. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's kind of almost like an expert panel, right? Yeah. 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 It's 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 not, you know, it's not something that you know, we sit down and we're like, okay, we need 10 people to participate in this. It's something that's really ongoing. So that they're, they're involved all the time. You know, it's, it's, it's not like we just use you, you know, maybe this time, maybe that time it's, it's, it's kind of a full pool of people that, um, you know, we're tapping into and, and they know they're engaged and want to be engaged and, and participate in. Hmm. Yeah. I like that a lot. All right, our next in the trenches question, how do I know I have the right tension or opportunity? And I'm going to let April take this one. <laughs> and she's not going to say it depends. So No, I'm not going to say it depends this time, which is often my favorite answer. But Anne knows that I get re- really, really riled up about this question in general. <laughs> <laughs> handing it over to me. So the first thing, before I really get going here, is you have to have the intersection of three things. So number one, there needs to be an opportunity or an outage in the marketplace. That needs to meet a true consumer need. And you as the company or brand needs to be able to solve for that outage and the true consumer need. So it needs to be all of those things working together to hit like a a true impetus or a true intersection point. Then I'm going to talk about the one that really gets me riled up, which is finding an insight versus just addressing an observation. And what I really hate about this, and and going back, Jen, to focus groups, I've had a lot of PTSD as a result of this exact situation (laughs) in those back rooms. But you cannot ask a consumer what they want and expect them to solve their own need or for the outage in the marketplace. That is your job as the brand. This is often a problem I would see with consumer research and especially in that focus group atmosphere is it would be like, hey, okay, we offer six lines of smoothie. What else do you want to see from us? And then it would be like supposedly mind blowing that they want a new flavor of smoothie. And I'm just sitting back there with my head in my hands like, oh, this is exactly not how we're supposed to be doing this. And so... The job of the brand is not to ask the consumer, but to ask the consumer the right questions about their current experience and then really listen to what they're saying so that then we can get to a deep emotional insight about what that experience is not providing for them currently. And if I go back to my Sephora example, right, they're seeing a situation in the marketplace, an outage of, okay, there's a huge gap between um, convenience store and department store and a really lackluster experience for the consumer There is a new consumer segment and a rebirth of what people are looking for and a lot of changes happening in total that are leaving that consumer feeling, I can either go to a crappy, dusty experience in the department store or I can go and buy cheap products in the convenience store. But what about the fact that I want to get these really great products and have a great experience at the same time and I'm willing to spend that money, right? So there's that intersection point that we are talking about. And I just, again, you can hear it in my voice. I get so mad when a consumer will be like, you know what? I'd really like to see strawberry. And everyone's like, 
oh, jotting down in their notebook, we got to make a strawberry skew of whatever. I'm like, this is just not what it's meant to be. So therefore, that's why Anne gives me this one. That's how you find the right tension point and opportunity. And when brands really do it right, they do dig deep. They spend the time. They find the outage in the marketplace. They hear really what consumers are saying, not just what they feel like they're stating, but what they're really missing. And they bring that all together to an experience or a product or a service that people really can latch on to and enjoy. You're not going to use your Henry Ford and the Faster Horse example? <laughs> no, because I've heard that one <laughs> twice in two different podcasts that I was listening to this week. So I decided it's too old and too re- too used and I'm not going to do it anymore. Oh, is, that, <laughs> is that a consumer insight or is that an observation? That's an observation. Okay, I was just checking. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that one just got fed to me. Um <laughs> Jen, how do you guys determine if you have the right tension opportunity to action against? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a lot of, to your point about, you know, the strawberry smoothie example, you know, it, it kind of points me to, you know, our fan experiences too. You know, it's like, you know, what would you like to see more of? And it's like, well, I like a Ferris wheel over here. You know? <laughs> okay. See, perfect. I'm sure that was not... a real, ex- that was probably a real answer too, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not like, yeah, sure, let me get that for you. But it, it's more of diving into like, what about this experience, you know, interests you? What parts of it are you engaging with? Um, what parts of it are you not engaging with? You know, those kinds of questions, I think, help us and, you know, each respective, you know, track kind of understand what the people in those markets are, are interested in and looking for. And it's, it's an interesting one too, because it's, it's not necessarily fans as a whole, it's looking at it market by market as well. You know, Mm -hmm. interests in Atlanta might be completely different than what's going on, um, you know, up in Dover, Delaware. So Um, it's, I think it's a lot of what you just said in, in, in pinpointing, um, in pinpointing things in different ways and not just asking questions as, Hey, what would you like more of? What do you want to see? Um, you know, what are you interested in? I think it's kind of reeling that back in and asking about the experience that you, you, you had, or, you know, or are about to have and and thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And you guys, um, both were great in the responses that you didn't fall for something that's actually very common, and that's the chasing revenue. Um, uh. When and we see this a lot, especially in startups, where um, they uh, these these startups will get um, just a comment from a consumer, which is like, you know, it'd really be nice if you had this, right? And so they're like, oh, let's go make that. And I was like, well, it'd be really nice if if you guys had this. Well, then let's go make that because they're just trying to chase revenue. They're trying to de- deliver products without thinking about the brand or the rationale or, you know, does this fit long term and end up then diluting their whole entire approach and their whole entire right. business because they're just chasing whatever a consumer wants in the hopes that it's going to generate some short term revenue that's going to help for whatever, you know, the, the financial gap that they may have. So the fact that you didn't just do the Ferris wheel just because I find very <laughs> admirable because, you know, you know, on a smaller scale, we're seeing um, a lot of startups. So that's a, you know, do that. And I think that's a not necessarily 
install Ferris wheels, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> Thanks, and so I we got think, it. Yeah, the chasing <laughs> revenue part is like a very big wa- watch out. The other one is generalizing too much. And so, uh, frankly, this happened at PNG all the time where we go do some really good consumer research and get all these really good insights. But then the first thing we want to do is generalize it into buckets. And you lose the deep insights in an effort to yes. try to simplify the presentation of the data. And that is a huge watch out because what it gets done down to is like watering down the insights and trying to agglomerate the insights into something that means something to more people. Where in fact, if you actually were to take the insight and then go try to find other people that might have the same tension or opportunity, you may find that there's an untapped potential there of a consumer that you haven't quite reached in a way that could, you know, further grow your business. So as you're getting these, you know, if something seems interesting, go mine and see if other people feel that way. Don't try to take what you just done in this research and try to generalize it so that you can have three bullet points in order to present back. So um, there's my soapbox. Um, all right. So the third and final in the trenches question, how frequently should I be revisiting my consumer target? And we say that, I mean, if, if you're living your brand, you should be really engaging with the consumer on a daily basis. You should be, again, finding out what's changing for them. What are they liking? What are they not liking? Is there something about their environment that's changing? There's something about the culture that's changing that you need to address. And it's not necessarily you're going to take action on a daily basis, but you're definitely keeping in touch so you can be more proactive than reactive. But at a minimum, you should really do be doing deep dives on your consumer targets on a quarterly basis or as some business triggers may come up. So some examples is you have a financial review and you really need to understand, are you delivering on your plan or what is working or not working? A lot of that's going to have to do with how your consumers are responding to whatever you're putting down out there in the market. Is your lead gen or your patronage stalling or slowing? If your consumers are no longer coming in, that's a problem. If they're no longer buying, that's a problem. That's a cause for an immediate reaction, all right? Even if it's just to kind of see, is this trend continuing or what's this trend um, or it, what's this moment in time contingent on, okay? If you're not converting business, this is a big one. A lot of people will put out SEO, get a bunch of leads, and they feel really good about that, but then they're not converting them. So there's something in your your path to purchase or in your funnel that is not resonating with your consumer and you're not closing the deal. You need to go back and you need to revisit what is it that's not closing the deal. Or something significant changes in the landscape, and we've talked a lot about this. If it's COVID, if it's new competition, it's new product launches, those should give you automatic triggers to see, hey, is my consumer that I'm counting on for my revenue now going to be uh, distracted or, 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 or are these other um, brands going to cannibalize my consumer, right? Or even if it's your own um, different products that you're putting out for that strawberry smoothie. Is my strawberry smoothie not going to cannibalize my seven other flavors? You really need to understand that. Um, so those are some um, some tips for how to um, and when to um, in, in re-engage or rethink about your consumer target. Hey, Jen, do you have any builds there for what what triggers for you guys? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, on, on the NASCAR side, like the sport doesn't exist without our fans. Um, it just doesn't, whether they're watching on TV, they're they're purchasing, you know, products from, from sponsors, um, merchandise from us going to the track. So 
to your point about, you know, just, you know, we should be engaging or, or listening, paying attention, um, you know, every day and understanding what, what the consumer is doing and, and, and where their thought process is. It, it's something that, you know, I mentioned our research and insights team. I mean, it's something they spend so much time doing, really trying to dive into, um, you know, different target audiences and, and ones that are, you know, ever changing and, 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 and kind of growing, kind of understanding, you know, you know, why aren't kids watching TV? Why are they using multiple devices and what devices are they and how are they consuming? Um, so we, we do spend a ton of time just trying to understand and then, you know, ingrain ourselves in, in the places where, where those audiences are. So it's, it's a, it's a daily battle for sure. (laughs) Well, and I think that's exactly the Mm -hmm. point, right? And that's, what's so smart about it is that you do have the pulse on it every day and whether it's you or your folks on the research team or, you know, whatever the, your panel, whatever the case might be, you're, you're keeping in touch very intentionally and regularly. And I think that sometimes people have a hard time remembering that, you have to stay in front of your consumer because there is so much to consume today. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) And to your point, you don't exist without the fans. Well, those fans aren't one dimensional and loyal only to NASCAR. And so I think that the competition is really all the brands that your consumer loves and anything that might take the place of it if you're not mm-hmm. there enough for them mm-hmm. or if you start to turn them off or whatever that looks like there's a, a million other things to fill that void in that time so I think now more than ever staying in touch and keeping that dialogue going is more important and it's probably only going to continue to get more important yeah and I think right. on, the, on the flip side Jen too I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that I think the NASCAR consumer is probably one of the most loyal consumers to brands in any sport. And that's because of the expectation that NASCAR is set up with how the the fans engage with the drivers and how the drivers engage with brands, right? In no other sport do you have yeah. moving billboards. I mean, yeah. for like hours, yeah. right? I mean, it, it's just unheard of. And so where you're talking, as much as I love the NFL and the NBA and stuff, where it's like taboo to have your brand front and center, especially associated with um, the talent here, the talent is like, the brand everywhere. I mean, yep. the interviews are like, I want first thing they say, I want to thank my sponsors and, <laughs> and how much they love the brand. And then they're engaging with the sponsors right before they're getting into a car mm-hmm. where before, like if you're in the NFL, I'm like you, you can't talk to any of these guys like t- until like one day a week. It's usually on Tuesdays you can talk to an NFL player. But like, you know, it, it's just it, phenomenal in, in the engagement and how you kind of like erase those lines between consumer, sport, talent and just brought it all into one umbrella and by setting the expectation is like hey we're all on one team here we need the sponsors in order for the drivers to drive they can't drive a car that they you know there's no sponsors because the sponsors actually pay for the car to be on the track the fans understand that and as long as you play according to the fact that you're not like a one hit wonder you're going to come in for one race just for you know the the value of the exposure and then you're going to leave you can really gain some loyal fans that, that way and I think it's because you guys have set that tone you guys have set that expectation and erased those lines that um, generally still divide sport and consumer and sponsor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those, the partnerships that, you know, whether they're NASCAR partnerships or, you know, the, the partnerships that the drivers and the teams have, have with, with brands, I mean, they're, they're walking billboards and it, it's not something you see really in, in any other sport and, and fans 
are just passionately behind it. I mean, you see Kevin Harvick fans just drinking Bush and <laughs> eating brother's pizza at these, at these races. And it's, it's a real thing. And, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll actively wear, you know, branded gear like that, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily like wearing a Jersey. It's wearing a, a blue Bush number four, Kevin Harvick shirt. And, um, you know, they, they pride themselves on these brands that these drivers are, are kind of supporting. And, you know, an, another part of that is, you know, the, the brands get a lot of access, you know, they've got, you know, probably, you know, the cars, obviously the, the billboards there, they get the mentions from the drivers during, after, before the race, um, you know, meet and greets during, you know, pre-race festivities, um, on the grid. Now they can, they can get there. They've got suites and there's a lot of points of engagement and interaction, whether it be for the brands themselves or those fans who support those brands and ultimately those drivers and teams. So, yeah, absolutely. And, um, I would love if there's ever an opportunity to go to some of Pitbull's festivities around NASCAR, <laughs> I can only imagine oh, yeah. what kind of uh, environment he sets up for um, game day festivities and race day festivities. Oh, man. Right? Yeah. I, I can only imagine um, there will be more to come in 2020. <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. <laughs> oh, shoot. Yeah. All right, we're going to move into our third and final segment, which is a real-world example of a brand who is doing this well or not well. And, of course, this is um, today about a brand that's doing it well. So we're going to let Jen take this one. Jen, um, tell us a little bit more about um, you know what you, whatever one you want to talk about with regards to NASCAR brand or the drivers or anything that's left, been left unsaid that you would like to add here. <laughs> and then also where people can reach you. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, one of the, one of the things that I, I feel is again, the, the biggest part of NASCAR really is, is the fans and, and really getting them, um, getting them to the track. And, and that really is, is, uh, dependent upon, you know, sp- uh, sponsors and who they're, who they're paying attention to and who they're, who they're looking at. Um, so really just, you know, attending the races and experiencing it as, as best as they, as best as they can. I think, you know, NASCAR really tries to immerse the fans, um, as best as possible with those, with those engagements, you know, coming to the track and participating in, you know, the fan areas and the fan zones. And, um, you know, it's been really tough with COVID, but you know, we're, we're starting to bring more fans back in full capacity and, and fans in the infield so they can get that up close and personal look at, you know, the drivers and the teams and all that goes into this crazy sport. Um, so really just getting people back to the track. And I think, you know, what we're doing as a sport to try and try and promote that is, you know, focusing on a, on a lot of the new things that we kind of hit on before. Um, you know, we've got these, these new owners and these new young owners, which is different from, you know, what we have right now or what we've had in the past. Um, I mentioned Michael Jordan and Denny, you know, they're relatively young. Uh, Pipple and Justin Marks, they're also super duper young. We've got another team, um, seems Matt Tift. He's he's in his 20s. Um, you know, it's, it's encouraging to see the youth kind of come in and, and take part. Um, so, you know, focusing on what's new in the sport and engaging others is, is a really big part. Um, the new configurations at the racetracks um, and the new schedule and how everything really looks. I think it's it's a way that we're trying to, you know, do business and, and get people engaged and and come participate and join us and, you know, have a good time at the racetrack with us. 
That's think, awesome. You know, if people, yeah, people wanted to reach me, I am, um, you know, on social media, I am on Instagram and you can follow me at, at Jenny and Canopal and on Twitter. Um, I believe it's at Jen Canopal. And do you want to plug your podcast? Yeah, I have a podcast. It's called, that's what we said. Um, and oddly enough, it is with, um, you know, someone else that, Nicole, uh, that Ann and I used to work with, uh, my friend, Nicole, she lives here in Charlotte where I am based and you can, you can take a listen to that on, um, any of the podcast platforms. It's called, that's what we said. All right. Everybody needs to check that out. All right. So just to summarize the four techniques for defining and engaging your target consumer, describe your consumer in terms of psychographic attributes, as well as demographic ones, determine what your business needs to grow more the same or a new type of consumer Define the tension opportunity that you can uniquely solve for and that delivers an emotional impact in your consumer's life and consider cultural and community opportunities for connection. And with that, we will say go exercise your marketing smarts. Still need help in growing your marketing smarts? Contact us through our website, forthright-people.com. Mention you heard about us here and we will give you a free 30-minute consultation. You can also share any topics you want us to cover which helps us give real-world support to our listeners in real time. And if you learned something impactful, please share with a friend and don't forget to leave a rating and review on your favorite platform. Now, go show off your marketing smarts.